The Manage Smarter Show is brought to you by SalesQuid, the app that helps salespeople discover why they miss quota and what to do about it. Find out more at salescred.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. You know, in a prior episode, Lee, of this Manage Smarter Podcast, we did talk to a futurist, and we have a futurist with us today, and you and I were saying we, we want him to explain how do you become a futurist and mm-hmm. what is the definition of it? Excellent guest today to help you with that and maybe anticipate a little bit better about what might be coming at you business-wise. You know, I was also reminded of Faith Popcorn back in the day. You know, it was like she made an entire career off being right once with her with her uh, futurist view on cocooning, I recall. And so, you know, I think part of being a futurist you know, and being respected in the field is, is about being right. So I'm very curious to learn more about that. And we'll talk to our guest today about some of his uh, thoughts and outlooks then on on a variety of topics about about what we see in the future. So it's going to be a great episode. That's right, Jonathan Brill. We got a long list of stuff we want to ask you today. So <laughs> welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm the Vice President of Communications here at Sales Fuel. And I'm Celie Smith. I'm the CEO of Sales Fuel. And live from Sausalito, California, Jonathan Brill is our guest today, and he helps leaders turn disruption into opportunity. That's what everybody wants as a speaker and advisor, the book, you got to get it. It's called Rogue Wave, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. He was previously the global futurist at HP. His companies have developed more than 350 products for organizations, including Samsung, Microsoft, and the federal government. He creates intellectual content for TED, HBR, Fast Company, Bloomberg, many other organizations. Jonathan, we, we had to move this a couple of times. I'm so glad we're finally having a meeting of the minds today. Welcome. Thank you. I can't wait to get into this. I'm a big fan of your show. Well, well I'd love to do nothing more than that. We'd do a, like a Joe Rogan and, and serve you some, some vodka from the Hanson Distillery down the street, but <laughs> we're remote. We can't really do that. Yeah, we, <laughs> just imagine for yourself that, you're, that we're drinking vodka. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so next time, next time you come out, I live yeah, in we'll uh, Sausalito, uh, which is just uh, at the edge of wine country in California. So and, we're talking and about. And for those uh, of you that go to San Francisco on conferences, meetings, everything like that, do yourself a favor, hop on the boat, you know, take the day trip out to Sausalito. It's great. Yeah. So how do you become a futurist and what is your definition of a futurist? Those are both uh, great questions. So I'm not sure exactly how you become a futurist. I I was hired into HP uh, to help them figure out what their long-term plan needed to be, how they needed to re-architect the firm, how they needed to uh, set up a technology and products for the future as they started to, to move into the, the 2020s. And uh, so I thought it was kind of heading up you know, a long-term strategy capability. And I got my business card and it said global futurist on it. Um, so that's how I became uh, a futurist. But I think there are competencies. Uh, the first is... Uh, gaining a full skill set for how to think about the future. And, and I'm sorry, I know it's early morning here uh, while we're shoot while we're recording this, but um, you're going to have your broccoli moment a little early in the day, the thing that's a little hard to eat. Uh, in philosophy, 
there's a little field called epistemology. And it's, mm. it's a study of how we know what we know. And it turns out that if we want to know things about the future, there are four major skills, techniques that we use for doing that, no matter what field you're in. There's uh, deductive reasoning. That's thinking like a lawyer, right? What if we know all of the facts, the whole universe of facts, what must be true? It's think of it like addition, right? Uh, there's thinking uh, like a uh scientist. And this is asking uh, what's called induction uh, or inductive reasoning, which is what's the range of things that could be true based on what we know and what is most likely. The third is thinking like an economist and looking at being able to build models of complex systems and saying, okay, there's, there's, there's a node here and it's connected to this other node. We know there's a link between those two things. And if something changes in this place, you know, uh, uh, how does it impact something, you know, 36 steps down the line. Right. And, and so like, if you have a supply chain issue or, uh, 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 interest rates issue, right. Will that drive inflation? Right? That's an economist kind of question, right? And then the last one is what's called abductive reasoning. That's by, called Bayesian reasoning, by the way. Uh, and the last one is called, what's called abductive reasoning. And this is really thinking like an artist, like maybe English major, like a science fiction writer asking, um, what would happen if one of the rules we know to be true wasn't, right? What if gravity didn't exist? What, what would be the implications? Or what if something that we, what if new information emerged, right? What if we discovered that a meteor was going to hit the earth in six weeks? Like how would that change our decisions? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the future, what you want to do is either you or your team wants to have that entire set of competencies so that you can look at the broad range of what might be true and assess the likelihood of those different things. I want to ask a geeky question here because uh, you know, I'm an analyst of human behavior and specifically yeah. consumer behavior. Yeah. And, and, and so we measure a lot of, a lot of traits, both in personality, but also in how people think. And so I, this is, I really want to know is like, what type of a thinker is best for being a futurist? Is it an unconventional thinker that doesn't see the world the same way everybody else sees it? Or is it a conventional thinker that does see the world like everybody else sees it? So the, it, it depends on what you're trying to understand, uh, I, I guess, is, is the, the question. So there's a fellow named Philip Tetlock who uh, does a lot of studies about predictive behavior. And what he finds is that a lot of times it's the, the people who create the reliably best predictions, they, they kind of look at the obvious stuff that the people who are more trained don't. So there's a fellow who uh, predicted the likelihood of Trump winning, you know, in, in the early 2016-15. And everyone else was like, that's not likely. And yeah. he said, wait, wait a second. I know the math doesn't work, but the guy's got a clear message. Uh, people are consistently following him. He's got, you know, a, 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 a perspective, right? Like you might disagree with it. It might, you might think it's awesome or crazy, but you got to admit that the guy knows how to drive attention like no one I've ever seen. 
And if you are in a popularity contest, that is the number one criterion. Or, or the guy that predicted the Bengals to win a Super Bowl at the beginning of the season. <laughs> Who the hell saw that coming? <laughs> yeah. And, and so there, there are there are people who think differently than other people, but they're really good at getting down to what's that foundational issue and what's the empirical piece of evidence that that would that would prove that or or shift my understanding and i would definitely think that uh, adaptivity you know and being agile in your thinking has to be absolutely critical though regardless of of how you're applying uh, your futurist though it's like that's absolutely critical no matter how you're how you're using is that correct absolutely that that's the number that that the the frequency with which you update your opinions the your flip floppery um, is actually a, a, a really good sign of being a better predictor. Absolutely. You, you said that your clients, companies that are forward thinking, have this combination of those four brains on staff yeah. and expect yeah. a rogue wave to hit their business in some way. And you said a rogue wave could wipe your business out in a day. Sure. Um, if you expect that you're going to have it, you do better and can adjust accordingly. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Because some people dig in and say, I'm just going to avoid this at all costs. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I'd love to. Let me me get into one one other piece uh, because we're asking about prediction and we're talking about this idea of like, can you be right or wrong about the future? Uh, I think you can be right or wrong within a range. You know, given the information that we have, if gravity suddenly no longer applies, it's a little bit harder to like predict that range, right? Um, but within a range, we can be relatively predictive. And so the, the, the question is, can you, do you flip-flop enough? Do you update your assessments enough that, that you're course correcting? Um, in terms of rogue waves, I think we need to understand how the future actually works, right? It's not like if this than that, that the, you know, it, and it doesn't normally work in kind of a linear trend where, where you, you do 6% better and 6% better than 6% better, mm-hmm. particularly in small business, right? What happens is you have crappier, 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 you do hundred percent growth. Um, <laughs> hockey stick, the hockey stick, that's what we call <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. you know, and, and that's kind of the way the future works is that the individually manageable waves of change uh, suddenly collide to become a massive disruption. Uh, we've, you know, COVID's being being a great example. So you think about what happened in the early 2000s, and you know, there were a number of respiratory pandemics. There were a number of zoonotic pandemics. There were respiratory zoonotic pandemics like like COVID, and we were able to contain them. So our ability to contain this type of pandemic wasn't the issue, right? The issue was that a whole bunch of other things changed and people weren't watching. Uh, at HP, we were tracking them. We were looking at the, the density of people moving into cities and how that was shaping uh, the, the, the interface with the biome in, in China, with, with nature in China. Uh, we were looking at the amount of uh, transportation, high-speed transportation in China, uh, they, that, which increased dramatically over the last 20 years. 
And then between 2012 and 2019, there was a 10 times increase in travel, tourist travel out of China, moving them from an irrelevant spender to the largest tourism spender on earth. So what suddenly happened was this thing that was containable was not, and it had nothing to do with their containment capabilities. It had to do with everything around it. So when you look at a rogue wave, what you're looking for is what are those overlapping waves of change that when they collide will create the disruption. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I think, uh, how I think about the future um, and how I would suggest that you do too. In the book, we, uh, we did about $15 million of research at HP to figure out what we can know uh, about the 2020s. And in the book and Rogue Ways, we talk uh, about those. And I think that's a great place to start thinking about that. So I have a, a few questions for you. I'm going to get, put you through a little lightning round here. Yeah, as, this as is far as opening up, bringing out your crystal ball. I'm going to ask you about five questions, <laughs> five topics. Or I want to get your thoughts. I on can't that wait one. to hear it. But before I do, I want to ask this question. How far out in, you know, can you look reliably uh, and actually come up with some pretty good predictions? Do you, do you look out two years, three years, five years, 10? I was like, Six how, how far out? Yeah. So, so it depends on what you're trying to understand. Okay. Uh, and it turns out that some, some things are more predictable farther out. Uh, some are more predictable closer in. Um, I typically look about 10 years out because sometimes the future can accelerate. And what I'm really looking for isn't like one thing to be true or another thing to be true, but what happens, what's the impact of, of aspects of that future, you know, individual smaller ways of disruption, accelerating or decelerating? Does it break the system? You know, so before we were talking mm -hmm. about thinking like an economist, right? A lot of what I do is thinking about systems models, right? What would cause something to, to break down? Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, if I'm looking for a three-year, five-year investment, um, if you know, I would probably be looking about twice as far out. And then, you know, when trends collide, you know, it's like I, I imagine you're 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 looking at that. So, looking at individual trends on, on a micro level, but then it's like when they collide, okay, what change happens? What happens if? I, I'm guessing is is how you're looking at that. Yeah, what's the range of possible futures? So, so what the way I think about it is, what I, you know, I'm a consultant, um, and I, I got a book called Rogue Waves. So, so this magical mystery uh, technique is called the Rogue Model. So, we talked about uh, reality testing, right? What skills do you need to know uh, to, to assess the future to get a good baseline? Second is observing systems, right? How do you do that kind of systems modeling, that economic thinking to understand what could accelerate, what could decelerate, what could break the system? The third piece is what you're talking about, generating the range of futures. Uh, and then the fourth piece is much more you know, traditional project management. How do you uncouple threats and opportunities? What, what small decisions can you make today that can shift, you know, possibility for you, shift your opportunity, shift your, uh, your optionality, your potential moving forward. And then what range of experiments, so that's uncoupling, that's the U in Rogue. And then what range of experiments, that's the E, uh, do you need to be doing? What portfolio do you need to be doing to make sure that no matter what succeeds and what fails, you're getting the right payoffs uh, in combination and the right timelines? Okay, you're ready for the lightning round? Yeah, can't wait. Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm just going to throw out uh, topics and I just want to get your, your, your quick takes on what you see <laughs> for the future here. So here we go. Topic one, 
remote work here to stay? I've been doing it for 25 years. <laughs> I, I think there are two top two two aspects of it, right? There's the political aspect, and then there's the uh, the the transactional aspect. Um, if you need serendipity, you need for people to come together. I, I still think you need to break bread. Um, if there's if there's a, a competition, polit- you know, Machiavellian courtship, you know, style competition, yeah, it's really nasty when that's not in person. Um, in terms of transactional stuff and and just getting stuff done, yeah, like, dude, Zoom is the way to go. <laughs> But you've got uh, to build the trust first. If you topic don't have number trust, two, uh, how companies react to the labor shortage. What do you see in the future for that? So we've seen an explosion in automation activity over the last couple of uh, couple of years. You know, companies like Accenture, companies like Zoom, um, companies like, like uh, Amazon, uh, AWS, they're going gangbusters. That'll continue. Um, I think it will impact aspects of jobs. Right, we heard in, in, you know a couple of years ago, lots of stuff about you know seventy five percent of jobs are going to get automated, and then we discovered that like self driving cars don't really work. Right, <laughs> they work on the highways when there's when there aren't other cars. Right, uh, what we discovered, and so truck drivers aren't going to get laid off. Right, so what we discovered was when you look at an occupational level, you know automation. Uh, is going to impact almost every occupation. But when you take a look at the tasks within a job, you know, uh, only 30 to 40% of those tasks are actually in, in, um, in job descriptions. The other, the majority of the work is small stuff that's really hard to automate. And I think that's going to be one of the, uh, one of the, the, the real challenges in that actually happening. We have a lot of sales managers that listen to this show. What's your take on the future of sales and salespeople? So I, I think there's a bigger question there, uh, which is what is, the ta- what is the future of product differentiation, right? Because at the end of the day, if you have accelerating uh, product cycles, accelerating commoditization, your job as a salesperson is to create price opacity, Right to to package things to bundle things so that so that your compa- so that your customer can't compare apples to apples, um, that's going to continue to be a job. It's uh, the other pieces diving deep into your customer into your industry to understand the problems they don't know they have that you can resolve through uh, more complex bundling, and I think that's that's always going to be. Uh, a need. It's just going to get a lot more sophisticated. I would agree with that. Topic four, cryptocurrency. That's a much bigger topic. Uh, (laughs) That's another 20 Uh, minutes. (laughs) So uh, there's a whole series, there's a whole shift in the financial system and and the economy that's happening. It's, you know, much like the internet uh, it's, it's happening you know, change the world uh, combination of AI, crypto, or really blockchain and digital contracts, uh, things like NFTs, not, not like, you know, Puff Daddy, you know, uh, putting up an NFT, but, but really using these as ways to manage contract contractual relationships between uh, uh, digitally mediated transactions. I think that's going to be a huge opportunity and challenge. So uh, a, a place that you can see that, um, uh, in sales is managing rebate down your value chain, 
Mm. Right. So, so today, you know, uh, uh, a goods manufacturer, Nike, right. They, they, they pay out rebates one step down the value chain, but as it moves further down, right. They've got no idea how that money gets spent. They don't have any control. So, so you can start to see systems where that rebate gets managed through a combination of AI using uh, blockchain to, to anonymize data uh, and, and yet get the, 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 um, the manufacturer, the producer, that the information they need, you know, and using uh, things like um, uh, cryptocurrencies to, to really act as frequent flyer miles through that process. I got two more. Uh, this one's for Audrey's husband. Uh, future of higher education. Um, Colleges, universities, specifically. It's a complex challenge, right? They've got mm-hmm. huge real estate. Uh, the, the, they've got uh, facilities costs. They've got huge labor costs. And you've got a shrinking youth base in the United States. And suddenly, I don't know if we we've decided as a country that we might not be so interested in having foreign, you know, graduate students here. That's insane from any economic model. Um, but that seems to be what we're doing. That, that seems like a bit of a crunch. Uh, the second challenge I think is that, you know, higher ed is really not served a lot of people who pay for it at the level that it charges. Um, and so the question is, you know, how do you avoid being a trade school? Um, because that stuff doesn't pay off for, for people over time. It pays off in your first job, you know, uh, and then how do you make sure that you give people the thinking skills for life? Um, and, and so it's the, the question I think of higher education is how do you blend those blend those pieces? You know, you take a look at a company, a place like Stanford, right, which is really become a trade school in a lot of ways. Kids go to computer science, you know, go there for computer science. And like by semester two, they're, they're learning how to build a business, you know, and that's the most popular class in the CS program. Well, this is a humanities school. Like Stanford is a humanities school that's mm. turned into a trade school. Like you don't want to do that. And it's happening even at the very highest end. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the last one is what are you... 80 to 90% sure will happen in a post-pandemic world? <laughs> that's, that's the most open question ever. I know. It's like, you can answer it however you want. You can it. I mean, what's that, what's that look um, like once we get to the other side? You know, it's like, every, okay, what yeah. do you think is going to happen? Well, the thing about the future is everything's true if you wait long enough. Um, <laughs> the, uh, over the next two years, I think we're going to see a real desire to connect. Um, I'm feeling it. Uh, and, and I think, you know, what we've seen is like this push away from conferences, this push away from business travel, this push away from all of these things. The consensus agreement is that those things are, are dying old issues. I, I, you know, I think that we're still monkeys and I think we still want to sniff each other. And I think that's all <laughs> going to come back in spades. I love that. And I, this is why I love that we got to meet you today because, you know, if you want to connect with Jonathan, who clearly wants to connect with everybody listening to this, you spell your name without an H. So it's Jonathan Brill 
Uh.com yeah, is the website. One, one H, the H and Than. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah. And Jonathan Brill on both LinkedIn and Twitter. And he's all over YouTube. And uh it's just such a pleasure. I'm just fascinating to listen to you. And I, I actually would love for you to come back. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I love anyone who has a message that, that that a rogue wave doesn't have to be a red wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the biggest opportunity that has happened in our lifetimes. 13% more billionaires in 2020. Uh, when you have a disruption, you see a 50% increase in new entrants into the Fortune 100, admittedly, because there's a 50% increase in uh, old entrants out of the Fortune 100. You know, but these are the times, these are the opportunities for radical growth and radical change. If you're prepared and you assume that tomorrow won't be like today. Thank you, Jonathan, for being on the show. So glad we connected. It's great to meet you. Thank you. You too. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.